listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 200. Yes, it is the 200th episode of this podcast, and for this very special podcast anniversary, we are taking it back full circle. We started at this podcast with an interview with Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union, and we are rounding out this 200th episode with an interview with Stacey Davis-Gates of the Chicago Teachers Union. She's going to talk about the role of labor and the role of public education in this moment of social upheaval, Black Lives Matter, and bargaining for the common good. But first, the news. Many of the workers who are on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic are working in the lowest paid sectors of the economy. But you might have noticed that many big companies are touting temporary wage increases for workers as a bonus for their continued service during this crisis. This is often referred to as hazard pay, though most employers give it a less severe sounding euphemistic name, like hero pay. Whatever you call it, though, most of the time, the extra pay, which is typically just a couple more bucks an hour, doesn't really offset the actual risk that workers are taking on by working in a hazardous environment. The Economic Policy Institute just came out with a study on how many workers are getting hazard pay and how that measures up to the real hazards they face on the job. Polls conducted by the Washington Post and Ipsos have found that most people who are still going out to work are significantly concerned about getting exposed to COVID-19 at work and potentially infecting other household members. That includes about 7 in 10 Black and Latinx workers. According to the survey data that EPI analyzed, only about 30% of workers are earning some kind of hazard pay as of mid-May. That's well below the proportion of workers who say they experience a significant level of risk on the job. I talked to EPI Distinguished Fellow and author of the study, Larry Michelle, about what the findings tell us about how people are navigating pandemic risks at work. We undertook to do some polling to find out how many workers have hazard pay. Uh, But in order to really understand the issue of hazard pay, you first have to understand uh, who's facing risks and whether they're getting the hazard pay. So we uh, looked at uh, three different uh, organizations that provided some polling uh, on uh, workers who are working at their work sites, not at home, uh, and whether they fear, uh, have safety fears for catching the virus catching the, uh, bringing home the virus uh, from work to their families. And what you find, I mean, I think that the, the major poll that does this is a Washington Post-Ipsos poll that shows about 58% of, uh, of workers are afraid of uh, bringing home the virus uh, from work. Uh, and as in everything in America, this is not um, – uh, something adverse that's born equally. Um, 70% of black and Hispanic workers fear uh, bringing home the virus, while 50% of white workers uh, do so. Um, now, the National Employment Law Project had a survey which allowed us to add uh, sort of a class dimension to this so that we found that uh, uh, you know data from their survey shows that uh, low-wage and middle-income uh, workers uh, have very similar risks, and it's a lot less than um, those who earn more money. Those who earn more money being those who earn more than uh, $75,000 a year. So you see, you know, a reinforcing class and race ethnicity um, variants. We know where those with the least power in the labor market uh, face the, the most risks. So then you might say, um, who's getting the hazard pay? Well, um, there isn't really any evidence out there much on hazard pay. Uh, we asked 
people uh, in, a, in a survey. And we only had uh, 664 observations, but still, uh, I think it tells us uh, what we need to know, which says that about 30% of uh, workers received hazard pay. And hazard pay um, in our survey is anybody who, in response to working with the virus, got a change in their uh, pay rate, you know, hourly, weekly, monthly pay rate, uh, received a bonus, or received some other financial benefit. So that's 30%. That's roughly half of the share of workers who are afraid of bringing the virus home. And, um, you know, black and Hispanic workers are more likely to get some hazard pay. But again, you know, it's more like half of the people who uh, actually, um, uh, you know, are fearful of uh, bringing home the virus. So we, we basically the finding is that there are people who get hazard pay. It's much less than the people that are facing risk. Uh, it's disproportionately um, a problem for black, Hispanic, and low and middle wage workers uh, who are not receiving either hazard pay or and are not finding um, their jobs safe. There's this idea that like, you know, oh, we're giving extra pay to like incentivize workers or the idea of like mandatory overtime. <laughs> like there are all these things that, you know, when they were originally conceived, it they seemed like they would be things that workers would voluntarily do <laughs> to enhance their economic position or, you know, as like kind of a right. uh, informed choice that they're making. But obviously the way things play out, that doesn't really, doesn't really happen. <laughs> yeah, well, economists kind of believe that everything is informed choice because, you know, if you don't like your job, you can go get another one. In fact, you can um, get on many a talk radio show or on Twitter and you'll hear many responses like, well, if the workers are so exploited, why don't they get another job? Which I think would be a good idea. We should make sure they have other good jobs to go to. Um, you know, but workplace advocates for safety uh, are very insistent when I talk to them, and, and they're right, I've known this for a long time, that we don't want workers to get hazard pay in lieu of having safe conditions, right? We're not looking for a trade-off, like be unsafe, but get paid for it. We, we want safe jobs for everybody. And to the extent you still face risk, you should get more money. So, you know, the first concern is not to get hazard pay. The first concern is everybody should be safe. And it, you know, it, this is not a high-minded concern because ultimately uh, it's hard to believe this will be a successful gambit to actually get everybody back to jobs if, in fact, they're not safe or they're not incentivized uh, to go back to work with, with uh, ample pay. That was Larry Michelle of the Economic Policy Institute. It is Friday, or at least it was on the day that this show came out, and that means it is Juneteenth. It is the anniversary of the day that enslaved people in Texas learned of the Emancipation Proclamation, or the day that chattel slavery kind of really ended in America. This year, amid a massive wave of action for Black lives and against state violence, in the words of historian Peter Cole, quote, the most radical union in the U.S. is shutting down the ports. That union would be the International Longshore and Warehouse Union on the west coast of the U.S., and I talked about its action today and a little about its storied history with Craig Merrilies of the union. Longshore leaders have decided to stand down and not work this Friday uh, in honor of Juneteenth, and it's it's something that has happened when similar crises have arisen in the past, when 
the Iraq War uh, began, longshore workers, for example, uh, made a statement and stood down. Um, but it's been a while, and this is this is the most recent and the largest um, West Coast-wide action that's occurred in some time, and it's it's being done in solidarity with all the African American people in this country that have been suffering for too long, over too much. Yeah, so for our listeners who aren't that familiar with ILWU, um, tell us a little bit about the union's history, and particularly the history of organizing this way for racial justice. Well, the the origins of the union go back to the tumultuous 1930s, when so many unions were organized out of what had been disorganized and and impoverished workers um, that were both ignored by the, the small labor movement that existed at the time and were treated so miserably by employers. One thing that employers did to make things even worse was to cause and create and instigate racial racial strife that was certainly there to begin with, but they supercharged it by often using African-American strike breakers uh, who were brought in, and, and they were desperate for work. And they were brought in sometimes on the docks and used to break strikes and job actions by the rest of the workforce, which ironically was low-paid, miserably treated, largely immigrant workers. And these these kinds of tactics um, more than once frustrated uh, and and interfered with successful strikes that were attempted up and down the West Coast. So the the leaders of the union in the 30s learned from that lesson and made it a cornerstone of their organizing to make sure that black workers were included and were treated equitably from the beginning of the union and that that trial, that ordeal in in 1934 in which there was a strike up and down the West Coast where uh, African-American and uh, other workers united to overcome these powerful shipping companies is what gave rise to today's union. Yeah, and so right now, tell us about the makeup of the union right now, which ports you represent people, um, sort of what's going to be, who's going to be, I guess, taking action. Mm -hmm. Well, there are are two large actions scheduled, one in the San Francisco Bay Area and one in Seattle. Um, The remainder of the workers are standing down, and that will be all the way from San Diego to um, uh, Bellingham, Washington, up by the Canadian border. Also, uh, the Canadian uh, ILWU members uh, that have their separate autonomous uh, organization, ILWU Canada, are also shutting down in solidarity. So this is a, a coast-wise effort and uh, will also um, include other workers, I believe, in Hawaii and, uh, and, and perhaps more. Other workers around the world are sending messages of solidarity. Yeah, it's a particularly, I think, poignant time right now while we're talking, we're having all these conversations about what is essential work, who are essential workers, 
what kinds of things people can get access to or not um, for the union to make this kind of demonstration of solidarity and of power. Um, it's, I think it's an, an interesting time to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, longshore workers, and, and they're just a part of the union. The union also represents yeah. warehouse workers, service workers, many other workers. But the workers on the docks obviously occupy a very strategic position and one that um, uh, makes their voices more easily heard than some workers in society who are more easily mm-hmm. ignored by people in power. Yeah. So it, it's something that people take very seriously and I, I think um, carefully. And, and this is a time and this is an issue that has compelled uh, the union to take action. Yeah. What else should people know about um, the union, the actions this week? You know, one of the things that's made the union successful and allowed it to survive through some very, very difficult times when mm-hmm. um, the, the U.S. government tried very hard to exterminate the, the ILWU uh, other unions, uh, sadly, uh, some other unions joined in that effort to try and um, try and push the union aside, um, and uh, they failed. And I think part of it has to do with the uniquely bottom-up, grassroots, democratic nature of the union. Um, this is not a top-down union. It's not a union where um, you know college-educated whippersnappers um, come in and think they're going to show the workers how to run things. Um, The people I work for, the president of the union uh, has been a dock worker before, and if he's no longer in office, he'll probably be a dock worker after. That's the history and tradition of this union. And uh, it has a grassroots, bottom-up, very democratic character, and that's helped the union endure and survive and, and makes it more vibrant and alive than than would otherwise be the case if it was a top-down operation. That was Craig Merrilies of the ILWU, and we plan on bringing you more soon about their organizing. We'll put links to more info at the Descent website. It seems like after the past six weeks of seemingly nonstop bad news, you wouldn't expect much to come from the Supreme Court. But the Supremes delivered an unexpected victory for LGBTQ rights, especially transgender rights, on the issue of discrimination in the workplace. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the nation's bedrock protection against employment discrimination, doesn't explicitly refer to gender identity or sexual orientation. But the Supreme Court ruled in Bostock v. Clayton County that Title VII does indeed apply in this case, and effectively, it bans the discriminatory firing of a worker on the basis of being gay or transgender. The court ruled that in the case of, say, a worker being dismissed for being transgender, quote, the individual employee's sex plays an unmistakable and impermissible role in the discharge decision, unquote. Basically, that means that workers in the LGBTQ community do have recourse if they are discriminated against by an employer, and they can bring a case before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The ruling complements other parallel efforts to protect LGBTQ rights at the federal level, such as the Equality Act, which would extend anti-discrimination and civil rights protections nationwide beyond the handful of states where such laws are already on the books. And yet the legal victory comes against the backdrop of massive social upheaval, including a pandemic and a surge of outrage over murders of black trans people. 
I asked Dale Melchert, an attorney with the Transgender Law Center, about what the ruling changes and where else progress must be made. We are certainly celebrating the Supreme Court's decision on Monday. Um, the Supreme Court made it crystal clear that transgender people are protected against employment discrimination. Um, and transgender people have been fighting for our rights for as long as we've existed. Um, and federal courts have been ruling that we are protected by Title VII for decades. Um, so we are thrilled that the Supreme Court got the law right here um, and made that unambiguously clear. This is tremendous for um, people who live in states or municipalities uh, where there are no protections. And that is many states um, in this country. So a lot of the South, this is a tremendous victory for people in the South who um, in, in most states in the South do not have uh, state or local protections. Um, I also think it's important to highlight too though that, you know, while on the one hand it's so important that we have uh, legal rights um, as, as a tool um, that, you know, this only reaches people who work in the formal economy. So many transgender people, particularly transgender women of color, are pushed into criminalized um, work and um, sectors of society that result in just a vicious cycle of criminalization. Um, and so we still have so much more work to do. We are pausing to celebrate, but um, as you may have heard, we're mourning the loss of two Black transgender women who were murdered last week, Dominique Remy Fells and Rhea Milton. Um, and then very tragically, we also learned of another murder of a transgender woman this morning, Selena Reyes Hernandez. Um, and so as long as transgender people are being killed, um, our work is certainly cut out for us. However, of course, we are happy that there are employment protections. How does it change things with respect to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? Are, are we going to see more complaints or could people always complain through that? Yeah, the EEOC has been recognizing um, claims by transgender litigants for a long time. Um, our case uh, from 2012, um, Macy V. Holder found that um, discrimination against uh, Mia Macy, the, the complainant in that case, um, constituted sex discrimination under Title VII. So the EEOC has been, um, has had this position for quite some time. So it will not um, change in that respect. I can't say in terms of the increase in uh, complaints received by the EEOC, but what we do know is that transgender people face rampant discrimination in all sectors of civic life, um, including employment. And so it, this is why it's so important that we have these rights. It's so important that we have some type of legal protection or recourse. There was a survey of transgender people in 2015 conducted by um, the National Center for Transgender Equality, and its findings are incredibly stark. Um, it found that transgender people um, are far more likely to uh, face adverse employment action than the general population and as a result face high levels of poverty. Um, a third, uh, roughly a third of the respondents reported living in poverty and the number of transgender people making less than $10,000 of annual income a year was three times that of what it is for the adult population within that income bracket. Um, so this, this is tremendous. This is why we need to be able to vindicate our rights in court. 
the Equality Act has been proposed uh, for a while now. And is that something that uh, you're looking towards that that might address some of the things that, that have been left unaddressed by the ruling? Yeah, we I, we certainly need the Equality Act to be passed. Um, but of course, it's, you know, as, as we've discussed, it's so much more than just um, creating legal rights. Um, Transgender Law Center has launched um, a platform known as the Transgender Agenda for Liberation, um, and it is a guide for um, how we move forward and um, what we need to do in order to um, allow all people to live and, and have self-determination and dignity. Um, so the first pillar of the Trans Agenda for Liberation is Black trans women and Black trans femmes leading and living fiercely. Um, and it talks about how it's important to center and lift up the leadership of Black transgender women and femmes in order to define the problems that we're facing and define the strategies that will set us free. Um, and those include many different de- demands, including trusting in uh, Black transgender uh, and femme leadership, um, telling their stories, taking accountability for um, the erasure that's happened, all of our movements are have been built off the backs of black and brown transgender women. Stonewall was started by uh, black transgender women and that history has been erased, which is like part of the anti-black racism that is so rampant in our country. We must defund the police. Um, we must abolish the prison industrial complex. As long as those things and carceral states uh, are in place, um, we will continue to suffer this type of um, dehumanization. In this particular context that we're speaking in right now, I mean, we're facing a global pandemic and um, we're yes. seeing sort of a nationwide or global really uprising against police brutality and both of those um, affect transgender yeah. community in very specific ways. Do you want to talk a little bit about how those two affected the community? Absolutely. I mean, so we know that the rampant discrimination that transgender people face, particularly transgender women of color face, um, are a huge part of the poor um, health outcomes of that population. Um, And many transgender people don't have adequate access to healthcare or fear going to the doctor or seeking healthcare um, because of discrimination. Um, We know that this pandemic has very dire consequences. I personally lost people because of the pandemic. Um, and in terms of police violence, this is, a, this is a struggle that our communities have been facing forever, as long as we've existed. Um, Stonewall was a police riot, and we're still facing the same problems today that we were then. Um, so as long as there are as there's state-sanctioned violence um, against Black people and transgender Black people, um, we have so much more work to do. That was Dale Melchert, an attorney with the Transgender Law Center. The curfews have mostly ended, but the protests aren't over, and around the country, the violent reactions of militarized police forces to a movement stating that Black Lives Matter have hurt a lot of people. Plenty of people caught up on the crackdown on protesters were just trying to get home. Not that it is okay for police by any means to be tear-gassing and beating protesters who were breaking curfew on purpose. But the curfews deliberately made a crime out of staying out past a certain time, and imposing a curfew on Black-led protests made it even more likely than normal that police would be seeking to punish people who fit the description of protesters. 
Devontae Williams was an essential worker, hoping to catch a few hours of sleep between two of his three jobs when he got caught up by police in New York City's curfew last week. He'd just left his job as a janitor in the South Bronx, was on his way to the subway when he bumped into a protest march, and marched with it briefly, only to be cornered with other marchers by police just before curfew time. Williams and the others were cuffed, loaded onto a bus, and sent to jail, despite Williams having a piece of paper declaring him an essential worker and giving him permission to be out and about in the city. He was held in jail for a week. For briefly walking along with a protest march, he was charged with multiple parole violations, accused of being part of a group throwing bottles, which is a description disputed by multiple witnesses, and refusing to follow NYPD directions. Apparently you get a week in jail for that. He told reporter Jake Offenhartz at Gothamist that he was held for 18 hours without food, water, or phone access. Williams might have accidentally ended up on a protest march that night, but he has a connection to the movement. He was close friends with Romarley Graham, who was 18 when the New York Police Department shot him to death in his grandmother's Bronx apartment. Devante Williams is just one of many, many people arrested for curfew violations over the past few weeks of protests. In other words, arrested for violating an arbitrary rule put in place to curb the protests. By throwing supposedly essential workers in jail for being out, the police department not only created more health risks to those they arrested than they were creating by protesting, it also emphasized, yet again, the arbitrary and unequal way that laws are created and enforced in the U.S. In charging Williams with parole violations for being out doing his job, Gothamist noted, it also undermined the very thing that parole is supposed to be doing, helping formerly incarcerated people re-enter society. Devante Williams is now out of jail. Others are not. Way back in 2013, I got the idea to have a labor podcast. Sarah Leonard and Josh Idelson and Natasha Lewis helped make it a reality, and our very first interview when we launched Belabored that spring was with Karen Lewis, then president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and one of the leaders of what was then a small but growing reform movement among teachers and unions that centered racial justice, coalition work with students and communities as well as other unions, and made the battle cry, our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. Today, we've reached 200 episodes of Belabored, and we couldn't think of a better way to celebrate than to return to the Chicago Teachers Union, and this time our guest is Stacey Davis-Gates, now vice president of the CTU, a longtime high school social studies teacher. And we are, of course, talking to Stacey in the midst of a massive political movement for Black lives, and she is one of many leading the labor movement to confront its sometimes spotty history on the issue of racism and challenging unions to do more. Stacy, we wanted to have you on this episode because it is our 200th episode. And way back in 2013, our first interview ever was Karen Lewis. So seven years on, we're returning to CTU. Um, but wanted to start by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got active within the union and moved into leadership. Um, well, first off, I want to say thank you for the invitation. You know, it's truly an honor to be considered and booked for the 200 episode, especially the fact that like one of like the key leaders and the resurgence of our, you know, militant 
um, wing of the labor union and, you know, absolutely the leader of the Chicago Teachers Union, um, Karen Lewis did the first one. So, you know, I am both humbled and honored to um, participate today. But beyond that, um, how did I get started? Um, I came from a union household. Um, the people in my family, um, working class household, they belong to labor unions. And so I learned very early that um, due process, um, a union contract um, helped to protect your ability to have, um, to be respected and to be treated with some dignity. And um, so that was important um, to me. Um, and, you know, becoming a part of the resurgence of the Chicago Teachers Union um, honestly was less about being a worker in the classic sense of worker rights and more about seeing the labor union as a vehicle to enact widespread um, justice and transformation. Um, you know, our leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union is um, a project of the common good and that we do not see separation between what people say are bread and butter issues and um, social justice issues. We believe that in Chicago and teaching in the Chicago public schools, where we're dealing with working class and lower income households, where um, many of our students are both Latinx, immigrant, and Black, that our work as um, educators has to encompass more than just um, a school schedule. That is important, and it is important to lift up the sanctity of Black lives. Yeah, you sort of uh, guessed my next question right there, because the CTU <laughs> was, was really the leader in this reform movement among teachers unions, among unions in general, and that racial justice lens was central to that process. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more and why it's been so important to the success of CTU's organizing. I think because educators are practitioners of the common good. And, you know, people like Karen and Jesse, the caucus of rank and file educators, Jackson Potter, um, they've been able to convey very clearly the connectedness of the lives of working class um, families, that of marginalized um, groups in our city, and just saying that it is no accident that we are dealing with a lack of dignity, a lack of respect as workers and that the families we serve also deal with that as well. Now, I would offer that I do think that there, the, the lack of dignity and respect that our members face in comparison to that of what our students often face and their families often face are different. And um, it's still in the same space of where, you know, folks who need the most and who, by the way, are working the hardest in this society are typically the ones whose voices are muted, whose power is choked off from um, getting the type of support that they need. Like I am struck um, by 
the emphasis that the CARES Act um, legislation from the federal government to help um, our communities through COVID-19 impact, how it is written from the perspective of the corporation or the elite, when we know that the impact of this virus has had has done the most damage to working class communities because we're not working anymore. You have over 40 million Americans applying for unemployment. And then also black communities where the death rate, the infection rate is off the charts. Um, Latinx and immigrant communities the same. Um, and then this, how it's also connected to the lack of affordable housing, how it's also connected to the lack of um, affordable health care, how it's also connected to like the the austerity policies of you know of Bush, of Obama, of Trump, and how they have you know choked off um, any ray of hope to like get out of here. Um, and out of here meaning a society that deprioritizes humanity for um, a healthy economy or for the whims of billionaires. Yeah. So CTU is also the place that the notion of bargaining for the common good really took shape. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that to our listeners and how it applies to this current moment? Well, I think here's the thing. I taught on the South side of Chicago in the Inglewood community. I taught um, in the Humboldt Park community. I taught in the North um, Lawndale community um, as a high school history teacher. And what I can tell you is that if there is any teachers union in this country that is bargaining contracts just from the perspective of the mechanics of how school works, and not about the impact of poverty, white supremacy, sexism, austerity, we're missing something. What I will say is that I think it's most clearly illustrated in red states where you have teachers, um, teacher unions and um, it, that really don't even have the ability to strike, going on strike because the austerity um, that the right wing and neoliberals in both um, parties have enacted on our states. And when that austerity happened, what it did is that it just marginalized the public sector in a way where even if you wanted to provide support for working class communities, for communities living below the poverty level, for communities of color that have been marginalized for you know centuries, you can't even do it because there's there's zero resources. And so you see teachers unions in West Virginia, you see them in Oklahoma, basically saying, we can't lower class size because we don't have enough money. They're saying, I can't reach the students that I need because they're hungry and they need to eat. I can't reach the students that I need because they're without home. And then coming back here to Chicago, you've had this very thorough assault on the safety net, and now it doesn't exist. You have students who need more 
but can I get more? Like the debate that we were having with the mayor and her team about closing schools, you know, um, as, a re as a response to COVID-19. The discussion, the priority discussion wasn't how do we protect students from COVID-19 is they don't have any place to go because they need shelter. Because we have about 20,000 homeless students. Number two, how will children eat? Because they eat breakfast and lunch at school. So at least three meal, two meals out of um, the proverbial three meals a day are handled at school. It had zero to do initially with providing devices and broadband so they could continue school. But how do we, how do we meet as practitioners of public education their core needs. So we're looking at schools to solve the issues that government, that corporations have created, exacerbated, and failed to address. And so we are forced, quite frankly, to bargain for the common good because our classrooms are being used as shelter. Our cafeterias are being used as a supermarket. So to like not center that when you are negotiating a contract, it's not just a missed opportunity, it's malpractice. I love it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the coalition that CTU has built in Chicago with other community groups and labor organizations and how that coalition is moving in this current moment of everything? <laughs> Um, I would say um, the issue is that work has to be done in movement. Um, it's not just electing one person. It's not just electing a few people. It's actually about the will of the people being expressed um, for a particular set of ideas and quality of life issues that have to be realized. Like, I don't know how you do this work in isolation. I don't know how you do this work and have answers without stakeholders. And so, I, I, you know, I would have to have another experience um, to give probably um, a more in-depth answer. Like the work as I've been participating in has always been work that attempts to center the lives of the people we're trying to, you know, impact, but that they also get to have agency and strategy and the creation of policy and the creation of organizing. And so that's the only way I know how to do it. And quite frankly, as a history teacher, that's the only way that women, um, that LGBTQIA um, people, um, that Black people, that like next people, that immigrants, like that's the only way non-white men with money get it. Like if we look back at the early age, the, the earlier days of the like like the first era of you know the labor struggle, those were white men, but they didn't have money. And so if you are a white man 
with land as it was written in every, you know, document that, um, you know, instigated the creation of this country, you've had to have collective struggle to get anything. There's no such struggle to get rights in this country that did not include coalition work, did not include mass movement. Um, and so like white dudes with money, they're fine. Everybody else, we got to figure it out in coalition. So in this moment with the renewed um, protest movement around Black Lives Matter, we're seeing the spread of resolutions to remove police from schools. I know Lori Lightfoot has said she's not going to do that. Um, so can you tell us some about the action that CTU has led to demand divesting from school police and policing? Well, I think this is quintessentially like a part of the coalition work that we are committed to participating in. Um, I would also like to say that it, it's been Black organizers and Black youth who have been, you know, at the fore and the lead on this particular issue. Now, I would say that our union since 2015 and the surfacing of the brutal murder um, of Laquan McDonald, that we have had um, a, a larger voice in the justice of um, black youth, black people, and black lives mattering. Um, and that being said, there was a contract demand that, you know, basically reallocate those funds to issues of restorative justice, training, um, personnel, um, more social workers, counselors, librarians, um, nurses. So that was a co contract demand. And, you know, that struggle had its limitations as well, right? Though we were able to win um, some things, like every single school will have a nurse at the end of this contract. Every single school will have a social worker at the end of this contract. Juxtaposed to that, um, we were able to get 30 um, new positions, either a librarian, a counselor, or a restorative justice practitioner and schools that have been dealing with high levels of disciplinary infractions by students, right? And so, you know, the theory behind that is it doesn't need to be more secure. It needs to have more resources for students who need them. So we were able to win those things. And it's still not enough. Like, every single school in Chicago public schools doesn't have a security guard. So the question is, what do they have? Um, and then the next question is, why are some schools required to have a police officer and other schools are not required to have a police officer? What's insidious is that there are, are schools that have both, but no school nurse. And so we have to be clear about the message that that sends our students, but also the larger impact of white supremacy on school policy and how we become complicit in it if we don't ask the question, participate in the struggle and clarify the needs of those who are telling you, this isn't teachers figuring out what students need. This is actually students who have been impacted very negatively by um, over surveillance in every aspect of their life. 
saying, this is not what I need to make me feel safe. In fact, it makes me anxious. In fact, it makes me not want to attend school. In fact, it makes me think that I am not of value because when I've seen other schools and other places, there's not a heavy emphasis on policing. And so we say that we want children to um, see themselves as worth it and that they have potential and that we care about them. But when they tell us what they need and how they see themselves and how they see their uh, surroundings and their environment, we dismiss it. We mute them. Um, we figure out fancy legislative tricks to um, not deal with it. We were sold that the mayor of Chicago could be the head of the public schools because it would be easier to reform the schools. And the only things that have happened is that the agency of parents, of stakeholders, of students, of educators have become more marginal as a result. And so, look, Chicago has a long way to go and a very short time to get there. My hope is that this moment does not disappoint people because it's going to take more here in Chicago to um, eradicate the growth injustice of how policing is done here. Like, look, it doesn't take a scholar in the history of policing to tell you that we have some of the most egregious cases of abuse, of coerced confessions of murder, and that somehow that space does not require some sort of um, clarity. Now look, as an individual, I don't see how the hell you can reform that, but that's me as an individual. As a union, we've endorsed um, community control of policing through an ordinance that would elect um, a, a, an oversight um, civilian um, police board. Um, it's called CPAC. And so our union has endorsed that as an individual person, as Stacey, I don't see how you, I don't see how you reform that. Look, we saw what happened in Atlanta, just days after widespread um, civil social unrest in Atlanta, you have a, a, a black man who was asleep asleep in his vehicle, how do you reform that? Like, I don't, I don't understand how you reform that. Like, there's no capitulation of the millions of people who are demonstrating in this moment for something different. Like, there's no capitulation there. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta abolish it and start all over again. And, and, and when you start all over again, you have to put an emphasis on the needs of people and the needs of people are not surveillance. It's food, it's housing, it's dignity, it's a, it's a living wage, it's healthcare. Like those are the needs of people. And I just think that we're, we are in a struggle. I am hopeful for this struggle. And I'm also bracing for um, the long term. Um, I know you were just mentioning that you had uh, had sort of a, a 
divestment and reinvestment agenda um, in your last round of contract talks. Um, can you talk about sort of ideally um, what would you envision as um, as kind of a, a redistribution of funds from police and these security focused um, you know tranches of funding and, and moving that into um, either you know education related programming or um, I guess like you know specific things that can help you build the kind of school environment that that you want? I think if the people were in control of the process, especially those who have been impacted most negatively by what, you know, we we're dealing with currently, if, if that was the control, is that, you know, I would like to see uh, um, fund schools as community anchors. Um, like, there are people who talk about community policing, but don't even understand a community school. And so, you know, you start with providing the school with a community focus and you resource it. Every school needs um, a nurse, a social worker, a counselor. Every school needs a restorative justice um, program with all of the stakeholders, parents included, with full understanding of what restorative justice looks like and what it sounds like. We live in a society where we only think through the penalty of it, but we don't think of how does someone make a mistake? How does someone wrong another person, regroup, restore, right? So providing infrastructure to relearn humanity like you don't just cast people out we are none of us are ever our worst day our worst moment our worst deed we're not and we live in a society that takes our worst day our worst moment our worst deed and it labels us period and we know that black people specifically have been um relegated to that because our racialized capitalism, especially here in America, requires um, either indentured servitude, outright enslavement, or low-wage work. And because of that, we've created a space where ex-enslaved people are over-policed are over um, incarcerated. Um, our schools have an overabundance of security and policing. I would like to see a Marshall Plan, a newer deal, a um, a greater society. And you know, and I'm pulling on the threads of you know actual programs that have happened, you know, throughout you know our history um, in the world that seek to redress harm. Um, you hear the, we, we continue to hear these conversations about reparations and what that means. Look, it is undeniable that Black people in this country have been oppressed, have been robbed of agency, democracy, of entry into like housing. Like The list goes on. It's, it's damn near limitless. So it requires you know, a large spread, all-encompassing thorough set of legislative initiatives that are funded to redress that harm. 
And so it's not one thing. Like I could say, make sure there's a nurse, a social worker, a counselor, a librarian, smaller class sizes. But then I also have to say that the parents uh, who send their kids to public schools, they need to be able to have um, a job in healthcare that is not connected to their job. So Medicare for all, right? It, yes, it is about redistribution. But if we're thinking about the type of wealth that was built globally, but specifically here in the United States of America off the backs of enslaved Africans, like this ain't even a percentage of what is owed and returned. And like the explosive nature of how COVID has like hit one community in particular, juxtaposed to like the continuation of murder of black bodies on film, you know, because like the murder of Mike Brown devolved into where we just need to put, you know, cameras on cops and they put cameras on cops and we're still seeing them murder people. So we have to be clear that this is not one thing. It's not going to be a cheap thing and it's going to require a generational investment to figure out how to redress the harm and repair the harm um, at the same time. And so um, it's all encompassing. It is all encompassing. CTU uh, had a demand for funding for restorative practices in schools as um, sort mm-hmm. of an alternative to the security focus, um, you know, school, school resource officers and, and the like. Can you, can you define um, what restorative practices would mean and how those would be implemented in schools? Or maybe they're already being um, implemented in some schools. Can you talk about like what the best practices are? I think in the broadest sense of restorative practices, one is that you got, you have, um, the, the institution itself um, prioritizes um, humanity and the ability of people to be better than their worst day. I think broadly speaking, that is like a pillar of restorative practices too, that justice cannot be, um, I can't get justice as an individual if another person has to suffer an injustice. Right. I think that's another pillar. And that the last pillar, I think, is that stakeholders have to not just buy into it. We have to practice it like this is a practice. It's not like a professional development. It's not a meeting. It's not um, it's not a thing that when it goes right, we use. But when we have some trouble with it. Um, we, we flush it down the toilet stool and never like figure it out. It's a struggle as well. Um, a practice, you know, I think that's the best way of saying it. In terms of how we implement it is that we have to get, you do have to fund it. Like this misnomer that you can just do stuff because you have good intentions is ridiculous. Um, you have to fund it. You have to have Um, a group of people who have stewardship over it, the reflection, the implementation, um, the, the, the refinement, um, you have to do that, but you also have to have the community, the school community capitulate to 
we see value in every student, even when they make mistakes. We understand that our children, their development is ongoing into their 20s. And as a result, we're going to, like we can follow science for COVID, some of us can, but we can't follow science for the development of the human brain. And the human brain does not fully form until you're well into your 20s. And so we have a situation in our schools where something like restorative justice provides a nurture. It provides a way to instruct and, and, and care for children as they are developing instead of zero tolerance policies that penalize and um, isolate students from the learning experience. Um, how do you do it well? you practice it, um, you reflect on it, um, you make mistakes, quite frankly. Like there's nothing in this world worth doing where you're not going to get it wrong. And it's okay to get it wrong. What's not okay is that we don't accept the cycle of good implementation practices and the voices of those who need to be at the fore of leading that implementation. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, um, I, I had read a little bit about um, how the restorative justice, there are some restorative justice programs being practiced as like a way of um, like court diversion for some youth in Chicago. Is that the kind of thing that, I mean, is that is that essentially the same sort of framework that you would want to see in schools when it comes to like dealing with say, you know, a uh, conflict between students or like a disciplinary issue or something like that? Um, like, or yeah, would yeah. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. yes, I think that what, like I'm a mother of three students um, in the Chicago public schools. Um, and one of the best experiences that I've had with um, my son's counselor in particular was her ability to see children and that the behavior that was being demonstrated while frustrating to adults was consistent with children and that her response was not to penalize them, but her response was to talk to them, to figure it out and to walk them through practices of restoration. Now, she also had to walk the parents through it as well because not all of the parents of that group of black boys were okay with figuring out restoration. Some of them wanted punishment, right? So I'm not, and, I, and I'm not saying that as a parent, you don't want to protect your kids. You absolutely want to protect your child. And you absolutely don't want your child in a position where another person or another thing or, 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 or an idea or institution is hurting them. And you got to also see the humanity in the other kids. Like the counselor made parents sit with all of the circumstances surrounding the incidents that, you know, the boys were like, you know, going back and forth with. And these are the circumstances. This is the context. This is, these are some of the, this is some of the, the experiences that, you know, some of the boys are coming into the school community with. This is what, I am suggesting and recommending we do and how we go forward, right? It, she centered it on the students, not just on the issue, 
but on the students and she 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 tapped into our love for our own boys to get us to think about loving the other boys who were quote doing the harm but she also kept parents with her she also kept their um teachers with her she kept the boys with her and um that is an experience that I'll never forget as a parent because you can think about this in the abstract or as a policy, but when your kid is coming home and he or she or they have been harmed, um, it, it changes. It can change your perspective. So, you know, having the experience myself and seeing it manifest, it was, it was imperfection. And those boys trust her. Those boys are willing to listen to her. Like she demonstrated to them that I'm not going to leave you behind. I am not going to give up on you. You have value. And those are the lessons that I believe that our children take from restorative practices. Um, can you describe a little bit how the how the school landscape is today um, with respect to police. Is there, you said that not every, uh, you know, the, the police presence in schools varies a lot. Can you talk about what it's like, um, you know, for, you know, to be a, a student or a teacher in a school that does have um, a, a police presence? Is it like metal detectors at the doors? Is it like safety officers are basically on patrol all the time? How does it work? Um, yeah. Um, both like, you know, um, every school I've worked in and I've worked in three, all three have metal detectors. Um, every school that I've worked in have cops and security guards and they were, um, two all black schools and one school that was Puerto Rican, black, um, and Mexican, um, predominantly. And they had all of the hallmarks of surveillance and incarceration. Um, how does it work? One of the things that I think it does is that it gives us, us other workers in the school building a barrier to authentic relationship building where when things don't go as we've planned and there is some interruption by one of the children in the school that our out can be just to call a cop upstairs or to call security upstairs. We don't have, we are oftentimes handicapped and not like fully developing our practice to deescalate to meet students where they are and to figure out how to build like authentic relationships. Now I say this with the full knowledge that the way our schools are set up also prevents that, right? That if you don't score high enough on this test, not only is that gonna mark your school as a failing school, it's gonna mark you as a failing teacher as well. All of these artificial pressures that have been placed on teachers to mask the poverty and its impact also prevent 
real connection, real practice with students and faculty. That we short circuit school by putting surveillance into place that helps us get about our business of, you know, get out your number two pencil and fill in the bubble that corresponds to um, this test question, right? Um, we forget that school also serves a very important function of human development. And human development isn't quantified on a standardized test. Human development is quantified in how we interact as people. And if we're watching our interactions as people right now, I think we, we see everything we need to see about what we're missing in education. And a big part of what we're missing in education is that we're not treating the people in the profession, treating the people who are students and stakeholders as human beings. You know, we treat the workers, you know, in a very undignified, disrespectful manner. And that same system devalues the humanity of the children who come through its doors and the families who need it the most. So it's a lot is what I'm saying. It's not one thing. The, the, the best, one of the best things that can come out of this moment is that people capitulate to doing it wrong. And forming space with everyone to get it right. Like in Chicago, we don't even have an elected uh, school board that represents the fullness of the community. We have a school board that the mayor appoints because they will say what she said. And that's happened since 1995. And what we've seen is that the success is only quantified in test scores not quantified in the type of human beings that we are producing in this world. Um, it's quantified in how many kids are going to college. It's not quantified in how many, how, many, how many of those children are returning to their communities and building community. Like those are all of the things that also need attention. Like no one's saying that you choose to, you know, provide a quality uh, mathematics program, we're saying that you also choose to address the humanity of the individuals who enter that school community on a daily basis. It's always an and. And in the case of having cops in schools, it's about redistribution. We have capitulated that during the time where cops became a big deal in schools, especially in Black spaces, it was also the time of unfair drug sentencing laws. It was also during the time of this, quote, war on drugs. So if lawmakers can say that that was a failed war on drugs, that we've overly incarcerated people, they can also say that we need to remove the cops from the schools because that, too, was a part of that program. And I'm sure that students, particularly when if they're coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, they're also dealing with police presence in their neighborhoods and their communities as well. Um, can you talk about the broader effect of um, this, you know, um, broken windows policing and this sort of excessive, aggressive policing on um, how youth develop emotionally and socially in, in their communities, you know, beyond the school walls and, you know, 
dealing with things like stop and frisk and, and um, police brutality on an everyday basis? I think that um, it's a caste system, you know, um, that we have redlined Chicago in such a way where Black people live in two places. And in those two places, you know, housing is becoming scarce. In those two places, supermarkets and fresh produce and, and food is also scarce. Um, the unemployment level is high. And so it's just like our policymakers have set up a scenario that perpetuates the, the, uh, the continued surveillance and incarceration of Black people for not having a thing instead of looking at it as an opportunity to build. Um, you know, I don't understand. I do understand it. Like, everything that we are dealing with is a direct result of a decision to maintain the marginalization and oppression of Black people. Like, that, that's the only conclusion there is. And so, look, we need, the, the movement needs to continue to express. The worst thing that the movement can do is to be okay with piecemeal approaches to um, the pain we're experiencing in this moment. I'm proud that the movement is responding to police murder um, and that it involves people of all stripes, that it is black people, it is brown people, it is immigrant people, it is black people, it is young people, it is you know, older people. You know, that's what it has to take. My fear is, is that just like these corporations are writing these ridiculous like apologies and saying it's gonna do better, but doesn't back it up with action, actionable um, um, plans that don't just say 15%, but how do we do it over the lifespan of a particular company, of a particular institution, of a particular municipality, et cetera, that we have to see the, 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 the need manifest into policy and not a one-off, like because the oppression, the racism, the murder, the, the, the lack of housing, that has not been one-off. That has been a continuation since 1619, right? This whole discussion on kicking the FOP out of labor. I get it. It sounds a way, but let's be clear. White supremacy exists in labor, period. Not just in the FOP, but in labor. So are we saying as a society, are we saying as a country, are we saying as a labor movement that white supremacy is unacceptable and that we are um, going to actively be intolerant of white supremacy? Because then that changes a lot of things. It's not a one-off. And it's not just about George Floyd. It's not just about Michael Brown. It's not just about Rakia. It's not just about Laquan. It's not just about Betty, right? It's also about every institution and organization in this country and about eradicating that which is killing us um, because we don't have fresh produce, that which is killing us because our homes are built with toxins. Right. And so we have to we have to name it as white supremacy and every institution, every corporation, everything has to fully embrace how we rid our spaces of white supremacy and the policies that 
promote white supremacy. And that is not a one-off. That is not, I'm sorry for six months. That is not just the thing to do in this moment. That is a practice that we are going to have to incorporate into everything. Yeah. Um, just to elaborate on that last bit a little, um, on this sort of unfolding debate over whether or not police unions should belong in the broader labor movement, um, does CTU have a broader position on whether police unions, security-related unions generally, should be you know, in the AFL-CIO or just you know, seen as part of the broader labor movement overall? Look, um, every single institution in America is founded on the premise of white supremacy. It's it's a fact. Like, and we're not going to get away from that just by putting out a statement. What it also means, though, is that we can acknowledge what it is and we can build out from there. Um, Labor, like every institution in this country, is going to have to come to terms with this practice that white dudes aren't just president, especially when the labor force is female, especially when the labor force is black and immigrant and Latinx. Like we're going to have to be clear about who's doing the work juxtaposed to those who are calling the shots on how we do the work, the boss and juxtaposed to those who are pushing back on our behalf, union leadership. And it's not even a debate. I don't even know what we're debating. All of that is just a fact. It's just going to have to be rank and file empowerment. It's just going to have to be clarity of vision and clarity of work. Um, and we're in the, and we're those, and, and this can't just be a moment. This moment has to translate into how we redo um, work and policy and everything. Yeah. Um, moving on to uh, the other the other crisis that we're dealing with right now. Can you talk about the effect of the the last three months of the pandemic on how Chicago schools have been trying to make it work and how teachers have been trying to make it work? Um, how has it been for educators and students and school staff? Um, and, and where, you know, where are you seeing sort of resource gaps as we continue into, you know, our fourth month of this indefinite lockdown for schools? I think that it's been difficult, Um, very difficult. Like our teachers went from a whiteboard on March 13th to like Zoom and Google on March 17th. And so, you know, for the past few months, our educators have been um, perfecting a practice while also learning that same practice with students in front of them, with families depending on them, um, with the pressures of a world, a global pandemic, um, some of our members have lost family members. Some of our members have suffered from COVID themselves. And so it's been a lot. And you're engaging children whose parents have lost their jobs, whose parents are housing insecure, who, um, who, who themselves are like, you know, the main breadwinners in their household, some of them. Like, we have a phenomenon here where when we talk about um, grocery store workers being um, essential servants, well, you know, those essential workers were also high school students 
who were struggling, you know, to figure out school on Zoom and Google as well. Um, so one thing that I would say is that if our society is still blind to the growth inequities that are experienced in, in school districts like Chicago Public Schools, shame on them for like closing their eyes and, and, and taping them shut with duct tape. Because it is, it is clear to us, even more so now, the ability of educators to put band-aids on this tattered safety net and make things worse in spite of austerity, racism, white supremacy, right? Um, and because our educators were not in physical proximity to their students, just virtual, we saw that safety net collapse because they could not patch it up with glue or band-aids or tape. Like it just collapsed. And so those who could did, and those who are, you know, perpetually oppressed by poverty could not. And so the lesson from this, and I think even more so from our members, is like we got to do something about poverty. We have to figure out how to make sure that families have a living wage, that they have health care, that they have housing, because the impediment that they experienced in terms of connecting with students it wasn't just broadband. It was also unemployment. It was also death and sickness, right? And so they know better than anyone what it will take to begin rebuilding that safety net and also calling for more robust rebuilding policies that happen over generations. This is not a one and done. And I think educators can tell you that you know, more than anything, which is why I also think that educators saying out loud that Chicago Public Schools is spending $33 million a year on police and schools. And I still have issues. So that's not an answer. That is a wrong answer. And here are the list of answers, because it still ain't just one answer. You know, it's a multitude of answers. And one of these things that I think is also becoming, a, you know, clearer to folks is that we legit have politicians who are speaking like organizers and activists when they should be speaking like people who get to vote and appropriate and prioritize. Like you have, like our mayor here in Chicago, she's on national TV reciting the talking points of Black Lives Matter while in Chicago praising the police. You know, our mayor is taking the language of the movement misappropriating it nationally and failing to secure housing, failing to secure safety, transportation, um, policies that are equitable and just, failing, like absolutely failing. But then taking the, the actions, the, the work of those who are struggling in this moment, taking it on tour nationally. And so, 
you know, I just hope that our, our activists and especially our organizers do not become weary um, with the tricks of the ruling class, the tricks of the political class, and that they, like, they stay on this right track because nothing is going to change because um, the elite, the political elite and the money to lead change is only going to change because people are struggling for that change. Amazing. So we could probably listen to you talk all day, but this is going to be our last question because we know you have other things to do. Um, <laughs> okay. So because of the coronavirus, we're looking at these massive funding crises in cities and states. Um, CTU has long been talking about these places being broke on purpose. But so in gearing up for these budget fights beyond just taking money away from the police, um, what kinds of demands is the union preparing and what kind of power does the union have to make those demands um, and enforce those demands? Um, I think the only power we have is the, is the power within the movement. Um, and our analysis of this is that it's not going to be just one person, one leader, one voice, one union that it is going to be a collective of the willing who see humanity in Black people, who see power and justice and the equitable distribution of resources in this society, that that's our crew. And that if anyone is mistaking um, transformative change or even revolution for that, for that matter in one person or one thing, then their analysis is off. And I will say that our theory of change is rooted in the collective struggle of our movement um, to, to preserve and to uplift Black life, to um, treat immigrant communities and people with dignity and respect, to prioritize the needs of the Latinx community, to ensure that women are not continuously treated as second-class citizens, that our power is in the transformation of patriarchy, um, the transformation of white supremacy. Um, and, and, that, and I, mean, I, I think that is its root, um, that working people get to call shots and, and get to make decisions that provide their families with their basic needs. Like people aren't asking for much. Kids are, Black Lives Matter is just asking you not to kill them. Like, and, and the fact that that is a request is absolutely immoral, right? Working people are just asking for fair wages to have their work reflected in what they bring home to their families. That ain't asking for a lot either. Like that, that the actual demand it's quite simple and humane. The response to those demands is what is absolutely um, diabolical and, and evil. We appreciate your struggle more. I'm sure. <laughs> we're, just, we're, just, we're just the messenger, but thank you for helping round out our 200th episode. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You all take care and congratulations on 200 episodes. That's a feat. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Stacey Davis-Gates, Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union. And now it is time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for this special 200th episode ARG is Corporations Now Love Black Lives, But What About Their Own Black Workers? by Tony Gilpin in Labor Notes. As waves of protests have swept across the country, the grassroots uprisings we're seeing in the streets have been followed by a cascade of mea culpas, apologia, and righteous symbolism from corporate America. In the past few days, we've seen the National Football League finally capitulate on Colin Kaepernick's taking of the knee to protest police brutality, and also admit that it had been wrong to try to suppress players' and fans' support for Black Lives Matter. We've also seen Amazon and its ludicrously rich CEO, Jeff Bezos, denounce a racist customer and express, quote, solidarity with the Black community, unquote. And old racist brand emblems, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, have finally been retired in what I can only imagine was an awkward scramble by the food industry to show how it was willing to do at least something to undo its racist iconography after decades of public pressure. Tony Gilpin dryly observes that corporate America's mad dash to wokeness is, of course, a bit more calculated than it seems. Quote, this high-profile hand-wringing is used to uncouple the outpouring of outrage from capitalist practices that are now, and always have been, at the intertwined roots of racial and economic injustice. As they nimbly co-opted the language of the protests, moreover, corporate leaders offered up, quote, solutions to structural racism that won't diminish managerial control or redistribute power in the workplace, meaning their proposals won't promote action structural change of any sort. With a few well-publicized contributions and some new rounds of diversity training, business elites hope to emerge from the present crisis with their privilege and their profits intact, unquote. And what of those impressive charitable donations that corporations like Walmart and Amazon are now touting? Gilpin breaks it down. The $100 million that Walmart announced that it would invest in a so-called center on racial equity over the next five years, in reality, that sum, which the company seems to be basically gifting to itself because it's apparently creating its own philanthropic venture, that $100 million, quote, represents less than one two hundred and fiftieth of 1% of the nearly $3 trillion in income that it expects to rake in during that period. Put another way, its gift would translate to a mere $13 extra a year for the next five years to each Walmart employee in the United States, unquote. Many of those employees, by the way, are Black, and they are earning poverty wages. And Walmart has been relatively reticent about addressing its role in perpetuating the country's tremendous racial income gap. Speaking of which, why haven't these companies just done the most effective thing in their power to do to address racial equity, which would be paying their black workers more? As Gilpin puts it, quote, how much do black lives matter to America's leading corporations? Not enough to put any real money on the table, unquote. Another way to help black workers counter the impacts of systemic racism would be to foster labor organizing, since unionization is associated with higher wages and benefits that can help offset the barriers of structural racism. But of course, these companies, as you know, are frightened to death of unions, and they have tried especially hard to crush the nascent organizing campaigns led by people of color in fast food restaurants and in Amazon fulfillment centers. Gilpin writes, quote, in order to crush organizing efforts, very often led by people of color, these companies invest far more in lawyers, consulting firms, and employee surveillance than they'll ever dish out to promote, quote, diversity, unquote. McDonald's and Amazon may boast about the diversity of its workforce, 
but their workers are merely a reflection of the racial economic hierarchy that exists outside of these workplaces, and they perpetuate the status quo. Their whole business model is hostile to uplifting the conditions in Black communities because the business model thrives on these communities' continued exploitation, and they certainly wouldn't want to cede any of the enormous power and control that they currently exert over their workers to a labor union. I'm sure many of you have noticed the ickiness of these public relations gestures, and we all might roll our eyes at the news of McDonald's lavishing a handsome sum on the NAACP. But what's the harm, you might ask? I mean, it's better than nothing. However, it's important to highlight these corporate giants' moral grandstanding is also taking up space in the public sphere that should be occupied by the voices of Black communities, and especially Black workers. They're Black workers. And the very fact of hoarding the spotlight at this rare moment, when the world's attention is trained onto the plight of Black people in this country, that's a testament to how seamlessly corporations insinuate themselves into the civic discourse, despite the hypocrisy that is probably blatant to even many of their consumers. What's worse, these ploys are potentially co-opting the debate by diluting the notion of fighting racism into mundane marketing boilerplate about diversity trainings and appointing more non-white CEOs. Gilpin points out that the media coverage of the economic dimensions of racial inequity has often focused on the lack of representation of Black individuals at the top of the corporate hierarchy, rather than on the collective struggles of Black workers to reclaim their workplaces. So not only is the marketing rhetoric of diversity and inclusion acting as a fig leaf for corporate profiteering, it's also eclipsing a real push for a long overdue social reckoning. However, there is one important subtext amid all of this cringeworthy virtue signaling by big business. They are scared. That's what they don't want you to read between the lines. And that means that the movement's message is spreading farther and faster than even the best ad campaign money can buy. We are, of course, still in the middle of a pandemic. And despite many states reopening to some degree, the virus isn't gone, nor has it gotten less dangerous. And working people still face the highest risk for contracting that virus at work. We've maybe talked a lot about meatpacking plants on the show thus far, and for good reason. They've been at the center of many of the worst outbreaks, and their executives have proved to have about as much concern for the lives of their workers as they do for the animals they slaughter. A new in-depth report at ProPublica titled, Emails Reveal Chaos as Meatpacking Companies Fought Health Agencies Over COVID-19 Outbreaks in Their Plants, by Michael Grabel, Claire Perlman, and Bernice Young, digs into the horrific truth of those executives' lack of care and of a totally non-functional public health system. They write, quote, The dangerous delay by the nation's largest food company is one of a series of breakdowns revealed in tens of thousands of pages of emails, text messages, meeting notes, and reports that ProPublica obtained from dozens of public health agencies across the country. As the coronavirus swept through the nation's meatpacking plants this spring, chaotic scenes like those in Wilkesboro have played out in small towns that have become some of the country's biggest hotspots. The candid, often emotional messages provide a real-time reckoning of how the companies responsible for a critical part of the food supply chain were hazardously unprepared and how a system that relied on tiny local public health agencies was quickly overwhelmed by the consequences. End quote. Meatpackers, the reporters note, had long planned for a pandemic that might hit animals, but showed little concern about the humans in their plants that might get COVID-19. That means that more than 24,000, yes, that's 24,000, people can trace their illness back to a meatpacking plant. That includes hundreds of workers at individual plants, 250 at a national beef plant in Tama, Iowa, 599 at a Tyson Foods plant in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, 
It's worth noting that while a lot of factories in this country have closed down and there aren't as many big concentrated workplaces as there used to be, meatpacking plants are still places where you have hundreds and hundreds of people working in close quarters on an assembly line or a deconstruction line, I guess, um, day in and day out. And that all of the complaints that people have been making, the demands that they've been making for slowing down lines, creating space, putting in dividers are being fought by the companies. The reporters write, quote, in mid-March, a few weeks before a massive outbreak at its South Dakota pork plant, Smithfield Foods chief executive Kenneth Sullivan sent a letter to Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts saying he had grave concerns that stay-at-home orders were causing hysteria. We are increasingly at a very high risk that food production employees and others in critical supply chain roles stop showing up for work, Sullivan wrote. This is a direct result of the government continually reiterating the importance of social distancing with minimal details surrounding this guidance. Social distancing, he added, is a nicety that makes sense only for people with laptops. End quote. I just want to, like, take a minute with that line because he really said that only people who work in jobs where they have laptops, I guess, deserve to be safe. And the people who work in these meat processing plants, again, processing the food that a lot of us eat, don't deserve the same safety. The virus overwhelmed rural health systems. In Dakota County, Nebraska, the health director said they were at capacity with one nurse when they had just 22 cases. The Tyson plant there, according to ProPublica, now has nearly 800. Plants didn't bother translating health guidance into the languages of the immigrant workforces they rely on, and when health officials tried to shut them down, executives went over their heads and appealed to their buddies in government. The reporters write, Quote, in some communities, the fear of tangling with the main economic engine was palpable, especially given the intertwined relationships of a small town. When workers at a Tyson chicken plant in Camilla, Georgia, started complaining about safety issues, the county health director had a problem. My husband and I are chicken growers for Tyson, she wrote. I want to recuse myself from any investigation into these allegations based on the fact that they can and will pull my contract if I am involved. In Waterloo, Iowa, where more than 1,000 workers tested positive at Tyson's biggest pork plant, the chair of the County Board of Health excused herself from discussions about whether to urge it to shut down because she worked as a chaplain for Tyson, end quote. And of course, the executives and government officials tried to lay blame on the immigrant workers themselves. State laws, written to protect agribusinesses, made it hard for health officials to intervene and gave them little power. They didn't have access to translators to help them communicate with these workers. This story is a damning tale of globalized capitalism putting profits over lives, exploiting migrant workers from all around the world who are unable to communicate with most people around them about the horrific conditions they work in. Their bosses pull all the right strings right up to the White House, where Trump, of course, issued his famous executive order to keep the meat plants open, even as they became clusters for the virus. And this is what we eat. I keep thinking of Upton Sinclair saying, of course, that he aimed for the heart and hit America in the stomach with the jungle. Perhaps we can learn something this time around and understand that we have to care about the people who do agricultural work. And that includes picking vegetables as well as processing meat, as you've heard, um, belabored from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. 
And it's not just the question of whether the food might make us sick at home. We are all complicit in the system, whether we like it or not. And stories like this one should remind us that the safety of food workers is important to all of us. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on teachers unions, workers organizing under coronavirus, the intersections of policing and labor, and much more. Thank you to everyone who helped us get to 200 episodes. Thank you to Sarah Leonard for first thinking my idea might work, Josh Idelson for being our first co-host, and to Michelle Chen for stepping in and keeping this thing going with me for so long. Thank you to Natasha Lewis, who has been part of every single Belabored episode, and in addition to being a killer editor, is an incredible karaoke buddy and friend. Thank you to Colin Kinneberg, who has stepped in and is now editing the show, and to everyone at Descent for believing in us. But most importantly, thanks to you for listening, for sharing us with your friends, for being our guests on the show and sending us ideas and emails and letters, and for donating. We have, in honor of our 200th anniversary of sorts, finally joined the crowds on Patreon, and you can find us there at patreon.com slash belabored. If you are a sustaining member at the Descent website, first, thank you very much. And don't worry. Also, you can stay there and nothing will change. And if you do not have spare cash right now, believe me, we understand. Belabored is going to remain free to listen to as long as I have the energy to keep doing it. But if you have a bit of spare change right now, and I know a lot of people are asking, and you haven't joined up yet, we do have some new perks over on the Patreon page, including some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier. As always, you can find out more about us also on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, where Michelle and I are doing regular interviews with workers all over the country who are organizing, rallying, fighting layoffs, and for protection on the job. We would, of course, especially appreciate your support right now if you are still getting paid for the cost of those beers you can't still probably have at a bar right now. You can help us keep producing the stories of working people in multiple overlapping ongoing major crises. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a school employee or hospital worker, if you're cooking or cleaning or carrying packages right now, if you are fighting for more rights or having yours squeezed on the job, you can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for getting us this far, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>